We must do it together. It isn't just about women supporting women and men getting more comfortable with that. It's actually making sure that no matter what you're crossing here in gender, in faith, in sexuality, in in whatever it is, if we don't get really good at becoming each other's ally, then we're going to just plot along and it's not going to be comfortable. And, and it really is something that each of us can do. Welcome to Messy and Magnificent, the place driven women come to elevate their career, health, and relationships. In here, we increase your productivity by replacing always being busy with the space to breathe. Hear your own wisdom and be part of a sisterhood that has your back. My name is Carly Fain, and together we're going to make sure that you have a doable plan and the roots to rise. Why, hey there, it's your gal Carly, and welcome back to Messy and Magnificent. You might hear a little bit of an echo on today's episode as I'm talking right here, and that is for a very special reason. I moved. (laughs) I am in my new home office. There are boxes all around me. I've got cushions off the sofa set up on my desk until I can set up the proper recording space in this new location. And it's just the perfect timing because it was only a year ago that we were launching Messy and Magnificent and the same kind of setup happened until we figured out a beautiful new flow. And this is the perfect theme for today's episode because we have a very special guest. Today, we've got Michaela O'Connor Abrams joining us. Now, Michaela is the former CEO of Dwell Magazine. She built it from a startup phase to an internationally recognized media brand. You've probably seen it on the shelves in your grocery store. But prior to Dwell, she led companies from startup to exit and turnaround to high growth. At organizations you've probably heard of like IDG, SoftBank, McGraw-Hills, If Davis, and Future Media. And these days, Michaela is the founder of Mocha Plus, where she offers an innovative approach to design thinking and leadership for companies that make good design the foundation of their strategy. Now, Michaela is a really sought-after speaker on leadership and design and media. She is always game to share her passion for good design and business innovation, so it is a big deal that she was willing to come have a particularly special conversation today because we talked about how humbleness is the new form of leadership. And I just want to make a quick distinction right off the bat here. When I say humbleness, I'm talking about humble in terms of the original Latin root of the word. Humble means to be close to the earth, as in to be grounded. Now, this is different than being modest. And if I'm frank, being modest, it's kind of a lie. Modesty is when we play down our skills. It's when we shrink to make others or maybe even ourselves more comfortable with us being small. And that's a tremendous disservice to everyone because nobody gets to benefit from your skills if they don't know that they exist, right? So today, Michaela had a really special conversation with us where we talked about how humble leadership is the art of leading through community. And then more specifically, you're going to hear how when she's gone through some tough times outside of work, 
how she's learned to show up at work specifically. We're not vague today. Michaela actually talked about the specific strategy she used, her process for how to let her team and her coworkers know when something big was going on for her outside of work and how to know exactly what you share and what you keep to yourself, meaning what are the parts of your story that are important that your team needs to know so they can continue to do their best work? And what are the parts that are really for a therapist or for you to process on your own so that your work relationships don't have to be your unofficial therapist? Because after decades of real life practice as a leader of many important organizations, Michaela knows that just toughening up when things get hard and trying to figure it out by yourself is not effective, nor is it a demonstration of courage or strength to try to keep everything bottled up and pretend like everything is okay just because you're the go-to person for a lot of people. So instead, Michaela explains in great detail what works a whole lot better than trying to tough it out when things are hard. So this is the part of the show that's one of my favorites, where I pause and give a quick shout out before the interview begins. Now, this shout out is particularly interesting because perhaps you were there a couple months ago when we did one of our signature podcast pajama parties, and we mentioned, hey, is there anybody you would love to see us interview on the show next? And a woman named Mary Halpin jumped into the conversation with a great recommendation And she put us in touch with Linda Hayes. And then it was Linda who, once we were on the phone, said, I think you need to talk to my friend, Michaela O'Connor Abrams. And that was how this interview came to be. It came about organically because women love to connect one another to each other. We are so strong when we rise together. So I thank you, Mary. I thank you, Linda. And I thank everybody who's left a review on iTunes. If you haven't done that yet, I encourage you to do that or tag me as you're listening to a screenshot of the episode on social media so that we can continue to weave a strong line of threads into a tapestry of women who are all supporting one another. Plus, I'd love to give you a shout out on an upcoming episode too. With that, here is Michaela O'Connor Abrams. Michaela, thank you so much for joining us here on Messy and Magnificent. It is my pleasure, Carly. I'm very excited to be a part of this podcast. So Michaela and I had the opportunity to meet recently through a longtime friend of hers, which is becoming a new friend of mine. And in those meetings, Michaela is just one of those people you speak to and immediately drop in. I cannot wait for you to hear the way she describes the evolution of her business and where she is now and what she's working on. And you speak so honestly, Michaela, about both the messy and the magnificent. That was how I knew, okay, here's a woman who knows about both of these things and can speak to them (laughs) um, really authentically. So I'd be so curious to know, a lot of people know you as the former CEO of, of Dwell Magazine, but that wasn't your first job. You had an entire you know, runway that led there. And I'd be curious to know, what are some of the entry-level steps that you would describe that got you thinking about being interested in design and interested in leadership in such a big way? Well, it's a, a really good question because I can tell you that with a degree in journalism, I really thought that I was going to be the new uh, Woodward and Bernstein. 
You know, I was <laughs> going to uncover the next really important uh, get, if you will. And so truly it was to my surprise that I would decide that that just felt too solitary. I suppose it wasn't a surprise to me that I really craved working in teams because that's who I was. My mother used to say that, you know, they knew they could move anywhere because I would have met the entire neighborhood at the end of week one. (laughs) Uh, So I love people. I love meeting new people. That will always be true for me. But I use the writing skills to get into the sales and marketing end of media. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And I can tell you that I am not one of the people that had the three to five year or 10 year plan about how I was going to climb the ladder and be the CEO. And then I was going to, you know, I, I didn't. I just um, very much always wanted to enjoy what I was doing at that moment. And I can honestly tell you that for 30 plus years, I always knew when it was time to move and an opportunity would come along. I would start feeling that way. A door would open and I walked through it and I became a president when I was 38 and a CEO. And I remember looking around going, wow. Now, my husband had a lot to do with the bolstering of the, wow, Michaela, you were so good at this. I want you to, you know, you need to run things, you know, and I thought, no, I don't. Anyway, I can go on. I I just, it was a really revolutionary career and I love leadership because I love the chance to surround myself with people that know more than I do and about any topic and So it's also an exercise in humility. And when you're younger, that's a harder thing because you have, no, 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 I'm supposed to know this because I just got the job. It isn't. It's much more, much more about giving up your power than it is grabbing it. Okay. That's huge what you just said. And I'm actually making notes as Michaela is speaking because there was a few things that you just said that I am so curious about. First, Michaela, when you explained how the evolution of your career has been pretty organic. So you didn't have this rigid by age 28, I'll be in this job. And by age 35, I'll be here. And at 47, I'll be doing this. But rather, you let things evolve. But you said something really important. You said, I always knew when it was time to move to the next thing. How did you know? How does that knowing show up for you when it's time to make a change or explore the next thing? It was a combination of things and different each time. But the common piece was a feeling of, I can't push this team or my bosses or the philosophy of the company any further than I have at this point. And yet I'm not satisfied just falling into line and doing it just the way they wanted to do it because I always felt there was a bigger opportunity. And I, and one of my bosses said to me, uh, well, he, he was great. He said a few things. He would say to my staff, please don't ever try to do what she does. Number one. <laughs> Number two, he'd say, can't you just be satisfied using our templates and our programs and making sure those are sold? Why must you invent something larger that we really all have to learn something new? I said, because I can't imagine how boring it must be just to have to do the same old thing. And we find that that won't be relevant. So it was usually those things. It was feeling like, wait a second, nobody's interested in continuing to reinvent. 
And then another dear friend and my husband almost at the same time said, your gift is that you see things for what they could be, not for what they are. And that really says it all. And so when I stopped being able to get everybody else to see that we could be so much better or larger or whatever the proper metric was for that position, then I'd start to, I could tell, and I'd start to think, okay, hmm, I wonder what's next. And I mean, without exception, I would get a phone call from (laughs) a recruiter or from a colleague who was someplace else and they knew they had an opening and they went to their boss and said, you need to make Michaela the president of this. And it was, that is how it worked. It was really, I consider myself incredibly fortunate and blessed to have had that really. Well, it sounds like, and tell me if I'm getting this right, but as you got clear that, okay, I've I've grown as far as I can grow in this space, this particular community, company, organization, team, they've expanded as far as they'd like to expand. I would like to expand more. As you got clear on that, then these opportunities came your way. So there was this clarity, there was this presence. And what I so appreciate about this is that it was without judgment. Because as you mentioned, I, and I wonder for the women listening, I think we've all heard things that sound like, why can't you just be grateful for what you have? Why can't you be happy with what already is? Isn't this good enough? And so this idea that you were able to feel this hunch, this inkling, this sense of, we could be doing more or different here. I'd really like to explore that and not minimize it right. and not buy into the, to the dynamic around you that was pretty happy with the status quo. And mm-hmm. I'm tell me if I'm getting this right, but I'm also hearing you express already a few times that you're clearly surrounding yourself with people who do believe in you, your husband, other mentors that you've mentioned. It's like, so it sounds like you thrive in an environment where people are expansive, where they are supportive of of the new ideas. And thus you're able to transition out of a place that's reached its max. You're right. It's true. And I think it's because In my enthusiasm to see things for what they could be, I'm asking everybody to do that. So it's not, look, I got this. I know what it could be. Follow me and I'll show you. It's here's the idea. Here are the things. Because it's not like I'd figured it all out. It was I just felt there were some basic tenets that I knew could be different or better. And then I would bring the team together and the dynamics of what happens then that everybody's like, well, right. And wait a second. And what if this? And then what if that? And start coming with ideas that I didn't have. All I did was light the flame. And this sounds like that humility, that humility of leadership. That was the other thing I wrote down as you were, as you were talking was this humility of leadership. Tell me more about that. And how did you first start to recognize that humility was going to be an important component of the way you would lead? I think it was early on in my McGraw-Hill days, which was 91 to 96, and I was made an executive vice president of the technology group of magazines and websites and for, for McGraw-Hill. And I watched some extraordinary leaders around me at that company at Standard & Poor's and at Business Week and a number of properties that, of course, they had at the time. And had the opportunity also to watch Terry McGraw and the chairman, Joe Dia. I mean, it was really the old American big, big uh, right. publishing and data company. And I admired several people there. And I, I just felt that when I watched the best leaders, they weren't the ones 
who couldn't wait to be in control so they could have their way. They were the ones that couldn't wait to gather all the people that they knew were really smart and had great ideas, but maybe weren't desiring to be the leader. They loved just being on the team. And when I watched bosses like that or leaders, maybe that I, that were colleagues that I didn't work for do that, it just actually reinforced a leadership style that I already felt was the best, was the most comfortable, at, at least for me, because I couldn't imagine somebody wanting to do it just for the power, even though heaven knows we've had many examples of that in the past, and we still have examples of that. And I remember my daughter, at, I, I think maybe she was six years old, and there was something, I don't know, on holiday, there was something. She said, well, you're the boss. You get to tell everybody what to do. I mm. said, no, actually, I don't. I can use it that way. But that isn't the way that everybody moves forward or that people feel really good about that decision. And it doesn't mean, you know, you ju- you um, manage by committee. Right, right. That you just make sure that everybody's very clear that their input is desired and needed. And then you make a decision, right? And, and you must, that is what a leader does. It's not, gee, we don't have consensus yet. It is getting all of the information and then really making a decision and showing that you know how to be that leader. Because at the end of the day, the team does look for that decisiveness. I love that what you're talking about here is not being an extremist either way. It's not being a dictator that just rules my way or the highway. And it's also not getting lost in the need for consensus on every idea, because that may never happen either, but that you're finding some middle ground there where you're drawing in the input and then you're making the final executive decision based on the collective information that you've brought. Could you think of an example of what this looks like? Because I know that we've got women and listening in who are in jobs in corporate or they're working on teams where they have maybe never seen humble leadership modeled before. Can you give an example of a time, maybe a project or something you were working on where this was effective and what that looked like? Yes. One just came to mind as, as you were talking when I was CEO of Dwell. And I often got involved in building the largest partnerships that the company had because I adore the creative process. I love watching people ideate and create in a room. It's one of my favorite things. So most often I was invited, thankfully, but sometimes I inserted myself, say, can I <laughs> this meeting? I'm so excited about this. And I have some ideas and you might like them, maybe you won't, but can I just sit there? Anyway, so it was for Portia. Portia had two agencies, a labyrinth of different people involved in the different platforms that Dwell had from print to digital to live events, to product, to books, all kinds of things. So we were asked actually just to come to the table and pitch an advertising idea for the magazine. And I said, wait a minute, there is a much bigger opportunity here. First of all, Porsche since 1952 has been all about design, absolutely all about design. And we need to tap into that history and the kernel and share that knowledge that shows them that we know this, that for 60 years they've been about this, and then bring them in to dwell on design, which was a 30,000 person conference and exhibition 
and then pull the conversation about those designs into the magazine and then on the website and engage people. And everybody looked at me like, but that's not what they asked for. It's It's right here, Michaela, in black and white. They asked for a print advertising idea. I said, I understand that. And I want to go back to the client and both agencies and let them know that we are going to do this amazing retrospective of the way that Porsche was driven by design the entire time and still is. Mm. And, and at the exhibition, we're going to deconstruct a Porsche and show that all the materials used in a Porsche are also used in some of the finest modern homes. We're going to pull them into a design discourse the way in which they have never been done before. Anyway, I could go on and on because I love even recounting it. But the truth of the matter is we sold them a seven-figure program. They actually came and presented that way at the exhibition that was jaw-dropping in not only the way that you could see these beautiful examples of material and how the car was deconstructed, but then you would be led outside and you got to drive one of these beautiful machines. Mm. But, and then back into a conversation about the years that Porsche continued to think about design and what their opportunity was with their customer. And the team got on board as soon as I said, I know that's what it says, and that's not what we're doing. We're going <sighs> to get something so much bigger and we're going to make the agency look good and the client will be pleased, and I'm pretty sure everybody's going to win, and it's not going to be easy because they don't do trade shows except the auto show. Never do they. So they're going to say, take that out. We have to make it so completely inextricably linked as one solid idea about leading the design discourse that it will work. And the team did a brilliant job of bringing that to life, of doing a deck that was incredible of getting the proper meetings and selling it through. And it, it really, that and another one I can think of were the most successful. And it was because we grabbed the reins. We didn't just fall in line. Well, and even from the get-go, as you said, I, I inserted myself into the invitation to be in that initial meeting, right? That like from the get-go, how do you have a sense of when is it time to insert myself and speak up? And when is it time to be an observer and, and to just witness? And, you know, I'll tell you what, that is one of the most important things that a leader has to learn. And it is almost impossible to perfect because we're human and <laughs> you're have good days and bad days and times when you just want to burst in and say, okay, I'm done. This is it. And resisting that temptation is always advisable. The truth of the matter is you always want to guide people in a way where they feel that that was their contribution because 100% of the time it will be more successful because everybody is a stakeholder, not a minion who helped make somebody else's idea possible. And while that sounds like a nuance, because if the idea starts and finishes at a place where, you know, you start with the idea and the leader was in a meeting and the idea is presented, well, who cares how you get there? Well, I, we could never have achieved what we did on that Porsche idea I just shared with you if I had done it that way. If I'd gone in the meeting and said, no, look, write it this way. And so it took a little longer. We asked for a little bit more time. 
And that's the way it, it really had to be in order for everybody to do their best work. So in general, I would say the reason you resist the temptation to just go right to we're doing it this way is because you will never have the best product if it's just your idea or your impetus or your mandate ever. So you want more free time, some space to think. You know everything would be so much easier if you just had a little more wiggle room in your days. By golly, I hear ya. So let's talk about my favorite B word for a second. Boundaries. 14 years of coaching has shown me that there is a direct correlation for women between how much time and energy you have to get to the things you really care about and the types of boundaries you're setting. But... Nobody has taught us to set boundaries in a way that feels good. And that's why this episode is brought to you by the Boundary Academy. This is my forthcoming at-home study course that's going to give you both the tools and the community support to make having boundaries both doable and downright enjoyable. I'll make sure to let you know when it's available. So get on the list by heading over to carlyfane.com and get totally free access to the mini Boundaries Like a Boss course. There is nothing for sale in this 45-minute program that outlines the three essential mindsets that women with boundaries know. And it comes with a step-by-step guidebook that will allow you to have the script to upgrade your boundaries on the spot, even when people push back on them. You know that hunch you've had for a long time that you're meant to do something meaningful in the world? It's right. Let's make sure that you get to do just that. This is hitting home so deeply with me right now. I'll have to, I have to share a little behind the scenes because this is so, the synchronicity of what you're sharing is it's astounding here, Michaela. So we're about to launch the Boundary Academy which is a course we've been developing for years and it's going to come out in 2021. And we had this whole plan for doing a soft launch in this month of November and working out any final kinks on the technology side and then doing our full launch once we knew everything was working great in the new year. Two weeks ago, the day before filming the whole thing, my executive assistant, Ellen Boyd, she says, Carly, I just want to throw you a curveball. Like take it with a grain of salt, but I'm having a crazy idea here. And she said, What if, rather than putting a lot of energy into doing a launch in November, we've got enough of a base, we could just invite, you know, 20 women that we would love to have be the first ones to test drive this and save ourselves the marketing energy and just get 20 great women in there. And as Ellen is talking, my logical brain is going, well, that's crazy. We already have a plan. (laughs) We can't do that. We've got a timeline. We've already figured this out. But my heart, my whole center said, no, she's on to something here. Let's marinate on this. And Ellen started something and we made a radical decision to rather than bring in paid people in November to form what we're calling the Council of Boundary Makers and to get a group of 10 or 20 women who we admire, who we respect, to look at the course first, give us their honest feedback, and then be there to welcome the first class with us. And that would have never come if Ellen hadn't spoken up and brought in this amazing curveball that totally, quote, messed up my plans, but was the was exactly what needed to happen. And to your point, because then it's just the back and forth with the, well, what if we do it this way? Oh, yeah. And then we could do this. And then we could do this. And the door of possibility opened, I think, the moment 
somebody, in this case, Ellen, felt comfortable to share, quote, crazy idea. Right. Well, using your own words and the name of the podcast, I sincerely believe that if things are a little messy, then they don't really, <laughs> they're probably not going to be magnificent because life is that way. Great ideas are that way. Things just take more time and they, their iterations, call them whatever stages, whatever you will. It's just, it's that experience of just shaking it up and that is really uncomfortable for uh, control freaks, yep. <laughs> for people who uh, are OCD, for people who need order, for people who are very structured thinkers. That's really, that, that gives them a level of anxiety. But that means that either, and this is where maybe I'm going to sound like I'm getting into the power piece, but that's a place where kindly, gently, and respectfully, you either exit that person from the team and if mm. necessary, from the company with great respect and, and clarity and understanding, or you know as a leader where their boundaries are, where there is a light that you think you can light in order to get them to see their role is so critical if they allow the boundaries to drop for a moment, if they allow the desperate need for structure and the boxes and all the things that business planning takes us through, in my opinion, not always to the best end. If they drop that and get to the next stage, then they're always in, in better shape. So messy in order to be magnificent is, is my model. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I wonder if you'd be willing to talk now for a moment about, you're pretty public about your four years of woe is the way you just described it. Because I think that when you and I were on the phone just talking, I could relate having gone through my own things that rocked my world and caused me as a recovering perfectionist to finally admit that I couldn't pretend to have it together. I couldn't pretend. I'd be so curious to hear in your experience how the four years of woe, what insight that brought you? Well, in short, I... Am the I still say I am the daughter even though my parents passed, but of young parents, 19 and 21, both became very successful uh, in their respective careers. Therefore, thought for sure, you know, in my mind, we're going to grow old together because you're that young. And then married a magnificent man who was in incredibly good shape and healthy as a horse. And anyway all three, and then a best friend that I moved, that Alan and I moved to Mill Valley to be near her and her husband and family, disappeared in four years mm. to all two different forms of cancer. And it was just unthinkable to me. So what I really did, admittedly, during the time I was going through this, was just to put one foot in front of the other. And Taylor, um, our daughter, and very close to my parents, was... This was basically happened from 14 to 18. So that's a, a tough, tough time already for teenagers right. and girls. So my, my first you know, instinct as a mom was to make sure I was present for her and somewhat sidelining my own sense of, oh my God, this cannot be happening. Just to make sure that she knew we were going to be okay. You know, you navigate this and this is where I talk about knowing that you can be resilient and really get through all things, whatever it is that happens to you, different than toughing it out. 
Okay. Yeah. We got to go there for a second, because when I've heard you talk about that, yeah. What does resilience look like when you're not toughing it out, when you're not pulling up your bootstraps and forcing your way through it? What, what does that look like? Um, it really looks like the one day at a time uh, mm-hmm. plan of being really kind and gentle to yourself. And that's, you know, not what was me and, you know, the pity party and, and uh, I'll never be the same. And it's mustering, you know, strength and confidence in yourself, but also realizing that you're human and there are going to be those hard days. I mean, it's, mm. it's the tidal wave at first. And then it feels a little bit like that's gone down, but there's still an undertow. And right, and, right. And the ocean metaphors work well, don't they? You know, <laughs> until you get to just you know the calmer waters, and there's always a sneaker wave that comes in there and and hits yep. you. Oh yeah. <laughs> you just know that you accept whatever your feelings are at that time, and you allow yourself to move through them. Different than head down. Just push them aside because they're not going to get you down and you're tougher than this. And we get a lot of that in our society about, you know, there's the tough and there's the meek. And I I really don't believe that. The resilient are present in mind and in heart and are able to acknowledge what happens to you, no matter what it is, however hard it is, and that you are absolutely able to make it through this. For some people, it is their faith. I know, you know, for me, um, had a lot to do with that, not believing that I'm the only person in the universe and the most powerful, certainly. <laughs> that helps, yep, that helps. I, I just think that, you know, and each person needs to do this individually. There is no one perfect recipe, but I do believe very much that the toughing it out and head down and just get through, it ends up being pretty damaging and it will grab you at some point and shake you, metaphorically speaking, by the shoulders until you let go. Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious for you. My experience has been that I, I can't selectively numb my emotions, meaning if I try to numb one thing, that numbness spreads to other areas, right? Like there, there isn't a way to say, okay, I'm just going to downgrade my sadness or my grief or my anger without also downgrading my joy or my ability to be present or my sense of enthusiasm, right? That they're all connected in, in some way. And so I'm curious for you at this, for these particular four years, what pragmatically did you do in order to show up for your career? Or did you not need to show up for your career? What was going on for you professionally at the time? And how did you find some way to continue forward while you also needed to tend to these really important things in real time without armoring up? The first thing is I am one that wears their heart on their sleeve. And (laughs) I am not, again, this is very personal, but I'm not comfortable just holding knowledge and things that are uncomfortable to discuss for a lot of people uh, to myself. So the first thing I did, and I was the CEO of Dwell when this all happened, because I was there 15 years. So when this is 2012 to 2016, was to first of all, share with my team each time that there'd be a diagnosis or that I would lose one of them, that this was just really hard and unimagined and here's how I'm feeling, but uh, know that my sense of feeling supported and cared about and loved by so many people and a team on, on my staff who just were superb human beings. So it really 
you know, I have to say it, it was a nurturing environment that allowed me with this team of people to be honest. And if there was a day that I needed to work from home and toward the end in 16, when I lost my husband and my dad within two weeks, it was guys, you know what? I need you to do this and you, you know, and just, right. And they're like, Michaela, we got this, you know, you take the time. And I have to say it helped me tremendously to have something so important to also be able to do so that I would allow my mind to go and focus on something that was, that needed my head in the game, that needed a sense of calm and can do, really helped in the day to punctuate what was otherwise really gut-wrenching. It, it really helped to do that. And that's not selfish. That is, and I, I really counseled somebody that started to go through what I did uh, just a couple of years ago. And I said, you're going to have those times and it is not selfish. Either way, it isn't. Whether it's not being there at that moment with the person who you're losing or not being there with a the company, you're going to do it the way you need to do it and you just trust it. Oh, well, what you're, what you're describing here, it sounds like you are consciously building in respite these pockets of respite on either, on either side, whether that was the need to be with family and take a break from work or vice versa, the need to throw yourself into some work to, to have a different you know, view for that, for that moment. And what I'm appreciating about what you're saying, Michaela, is that it was done consciously. Like, I think that's the difference between when we, and I know I have been guilty of this and it's interesting. So many of the periods of great growth in my career have happened during particularly painful personal times where my coping strategy was to just work super hard because I felt like, well, I can control the outcome of my work. I can't control somebody passing away or I can't control this other thing that's painful or this traumatic event that just happened, but I can do my work. And, and there was the blessing and the curse in that. The blessing was, well, then this one area did well. Um, the, the curse was that I didn't ride the waves of grief in the present moment. And then they would show up in funny, strange scenarios. I mean, sometimes silly things. I remember one time being in the grocery store and they were out of broccoli and I just burst into tears. And the poor, like, you know, kids trying to stock the shelves probably thought I was really crying about the broccoli. And it was not about being out of broccoli. <laughs> it was like, oh no, this is something that I have suppressed that needs to be addressed. And so what I appreciate is, is the permission you're extending to go where you need to go consciously. I need a break from this one thing and that's okay. I'm going to go to this other thing and to tend as needed to both of these. Part of the reason why people don't do the things that when they're asked the question, what will you do if you weren't afraid is because if they even get as far as articulating it, there are all these other voices and people going, you're doing what? But you're so good at that. But why would you do that? Oh, well, that, you know, I know somebody who does that and they don't like it. And all the other chatter starts. And it's not that, you know, again, as humans, we want to be surrounded by other people and do surround ourselves with other people, right, who we admire and respect. So we want to know what they think. It's why, you know, during consumer reports and all those things about how did you, you know, what's the reason why you bought this? Right. You know, because the friend that's helpful exactly it wasn't because you know anyway and so i i really believe that that's one of the things that we have to tackle is is the chatter and still being curious and not 
you know, just being single-minded about something, but allowing that just to kind of be synthesized, not attacking your idea. Yes. Well, and this goes back to your earliest theme in the very beginning of our conversation about surrounding yourself with people who are actively constructive, who are supportive, who, when you bring an idea forth, are going to champion it with you, you know, and remind you of what you're capable of in the moments when we all hear those doubts. I love how you know, we've all heard that, who are you to be doing this? Who do you think you are? Are you qualified? The, you know, those thoughts are within ourselves too. And so to be in a community that is supportive makes a world of difference and to cultivate that consciously. I'm so curious for you because I know we're going to have women who ask the question, especially because authenticity is such a buzzword right now. And there's a big difference, I think, between authenticity and disclosure, you know, and just sharing all your bits on Instagram and really authentically inviting people in for meaningful connection. And I'm curious, I know there's no one size fits all, you know, prescription for how to share authentically, but how did you gauge what was appropriate to talk about with your team in a moment where it was going to be some vulnerable sharings and what you might hold dear to your heart or process elsewhere? Yeah. So the way in which I shared it with the team was to talk about the fact that the First, this is what's happening. And of course, you get the, you know, wide eyes and the gasps. And and then I said, and it is going to be what it's going to be. That we know. Because this is the ultimate test of not being in control of it. I have to, you know, right. work with it. Know that, I'd say, that that means that there are going to be some harder days for me than others. If I don't seem present to you, or I am not responding in a way that you need or think I've done before that you were used to, then you need to feel comfortable saying, hey, Michaela, I need this. And not, well, we better not ask her for a meeting, go into her office or anything else because, I mean, my God, after all, she has all these people sick in her life. You must do the opposite. You Mm -hmm. must do the opposite. You must stay present with me. And I know because of the wonderful friends around me outside this company that I have all the support and love and care that I need. So you aren't filling that role. You are not here to, you know, let me cry on your shoulder or anything else. Well, I know a few of you would like to do that. That's not (laughs) what we're going to do. What we're going to do is just be open and honest with each other about the situation at hand. And I feel completely comfortable and capable of still leading. And if there's any time that I don't, or I feel that is compromised, then I absolutely will make some changes. But perhaps I won't do that. And you will think that. So you need to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, we're missing something over here, or we're lacking this. And when you go into that, so that isn't sharing like how it all makes you feel and the angst of each day or the, you know, the doctor's appointment and stuff that really isn't appropriate in a work environment because all you're Mm -hmm. doing is transferring that huge angst onto the the team. And you don't need them burdened and laden with this. You need them just understanding, not questioning, like there must be something going on in she or he is not saying anything. It's, it's disruptive and it doesn't need to be disruptive. It needs just to be open and honest 
and just say, you know, I still feel very capable of leading. I got this. Now that may not be running a whole company. It may be a team of people. Right. Um, Maybe a nonprofit somebody runs, but just appropriately say, you know, this is what my role says, you know, that I need to do. And I feel totally capable of doing that. And, and I'll let you know the days when I can't. I think what you're talking about is is really a level of of transparency and you communicated so clearly what you needed help with. Like there was an asking for help in in saying, I need you if you're not getting what you are used to. If something's missing, I need you to come knock on the door because that's how you're actually going to help me or you're going to help us as a team. So there was this kind of recalibration or clarification around expectations. This is what I expect you to do. This is what I don't expect you to do. I don't expect you to be my workplace therapist. I got right. And so there's this, this clearness. And I love that rather than leading people to, when people don't know, when we don't know, we innately fill in our own story. You gave a great example of that. If they're not getting what they need, they might assume, well, I can't bother her. That means I shouldn't bother Michaela. She's got too much on her plate. And so you took the need for filler story out because you just shared the story so clearly. And this speaks to me about your, I mean, your innate ability since you were a child to form partnership. And this is partnership rather than, you know, a hierarchy necessarily, even though you are the boss, that you're bringing them in to the conversation, but in a, in a healthy and, and respectful way. And, you know, partnership is what you've done forever. And now you're doing it in this new format. And I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the collective conscious salon for a second, because this has been a, a tremendous creation that you've invented just before COVID happened, right? So could you tell for folks who haven't heard about the collective conscious, what, what that is and what caused you to create this new thing now? Yes. So my business partner, and I, Shelley Tatum, Kieran, and I really, we enjoy our work as an advisory practice, but we love bringing together great people. We're both networkers at heart. We both love the people that um, we've had the opportunity and the good fortune to meet over the years. Finding those connections is just, I mean, in fact, that's the tagline of our company is connecting by design. As you point out, before COVID, we decided, well, what can we do to really act on this, to get incredible, like a guest speaker in a salon-like environment, not, not a giant event, and topics from myriad industries in different ways, from chefs to farmers to neuroscientists to designers to therapists to balance experts. I mean, let's just give everybody a chance to be a part of something they may never have done before or been uh, in the company of. So we had the first one here at my home with Nancy Davis Coe, an amazing uh, author and contributing editor. She wrote the book, The The Thank You Project, which you must read. It is phenomenal. And it was a great meeting. We had about 35 people. And I so crave that again in the post-COVID world. Yeah. And it was great. Okay. Along comes COVID. (laughs) And because the goal had been to move this around the country into really interesting places to galleries and museums and other iconic homes and just thought, you know, the environment is everything. Right. So anyway, long comes COVID and we said, all right, you know what, let's double down. Let's do this every week. 
so that we give everybody a chance to just take all of this off their minds for one hour and we'll do it on a Monday night. I mean, it really started to roll like this. And we've done it now for 36 weeks. And we have had chefs and farmers and neuroscientists and designers and authors and counselors. And it's been just a pleasure. And what's so great is that what we're finding is our community that's growing now has come to this because it's doing what we hoped it would do is just Mm. starting off the week for that one hour from six to seven Pacific standard time to discuss something that they probably wouldn't have been reading in the paper or, you know, on any of their news sites or blogs and they get to be part of it. It's very much, even though I moderate it, we watch the chat very carefully about Q and a and are inclusive and say, wait a minute, somebody has a question. It's been tremendous. And so the whole idea is that even in a world where there's so much dividing us right now and so much that's really causing people angst with the virus and all kinds of other things, not least of which also is the uh, social injustice issues, and that we need this hour to just quiet and be happy. And my favorite example would be the night before the election, because we've never missed a Monday no matter a holiday or whatever was coming, you know, Shelly and I said, okay, we cannot do something with big gravity here the night before this election because people are going to be beside themselves. So we went back to our resident chef, Rochelle Boucher, and one of our MVPs of our community, another chef up in Placer County, Drew Schultz. And we did a election night menu that you could cook the next day and keep cooking and eating all day if you chose. So, you know, the campaign trail mix and the sleepy Joe's and the (laughs) on toast. And so, and we had a ball and uh, we got more great feedback from, wow, thank you for just, it let us laugh and it was light. And oh, by the way, we're making a lot of those dishes today. (laughs) Well, here's this theme again of you providing a space of respite right? Your, your strengths being around partnership and community and figuring out how to navigate, you know, difficult times or tricky times and create these pockets. And I'll say as somebody who's, who is a guest, I got to be there um, for the evening when you brought in a journalist who was talking about, you know, the current state of media and the future of media. And that's outside of my, of my wheelhouse. And what a delight it was to get to learn about something from a perspective I I felt like an insider. I'm getting the scoop on something that I would have never known about so clearly. And what what a gift that is in this moment. So I'm going to make sure that we put a link to this in the show notes. So for anybody who's interested, you can come learn more about how to connect um, with Michaela and what she's and what she's working on here. Michaela, are you game to do our two way Q and A? I am. I'm ready. All right. So here we go. If you came with a warning label. What might it say? Caution, irrational exuberance. (laughs) I love that. Irrational exuberance. So defying logic. Your enthusiasm is bigger than what is reasonable. Thank goodness for that. That just speaks to your initial theme of always expanding and growing into the next thing. Uh, So good. So if you could ask a question... Of the women listening right now, based on our conversation, what is one thing you would like to know about them? 
You know, I would like to know what they would do if they weren't afraid. Mm. I'd like them to write it down for themselves, to think about the most wonderful, and I stop short of ever saying fantasy, because fantasy by definition is something that will never happen. That is just, you know, so untouchable, so out of reach. So it's not a fantasy. What would you do? What just makes your heart sing, you know, and, and make you feel lighter and smile when you think of it? What is that? And write it down. And I bet if you found that you weren't afraid of failing or it was too expensive or there are going to be all those excuses of why not, what would you do? And you should write that down and figure out how to do it. Oh, yes. And I want to hear some of those. So if anybody listening, you write that down and you feel comfortable sharing it. I hope you'll tag myself or Michaela on social media or put that in a review on iTunes so we can be here cheering you on. We can be your your unreasonably exuberant or illogically exuberant support team. So Michaela, based on where we are right now, even if other people disagree, what is one thing that you know to be true? That in order for us all to continue to be better people individually and collectively as a society at everything, that we must do it together. It isn't just about women supporting women and men getting, you know, more comfortable with that. It's actually making sure that no matter what you're crossing here in gender, in faith, in sexuality, in in whatever it is, if we don't get really good at becoming each other's ally, then we're going to just plot along and it's not going to be comfortable. And, And it really is something that each of us can do. It isn't outside of us. It isn't bigger than us. It doesn't rule us. It's not about necessarily a structure of government or anything else. If we each decide that we are going to make sure that being the best person we can be means helping everybody be that also with our, you know, again, with humility and support, not in, I know how you should do this. I believe that is absolutely true. And I would love to have a debate with somebody who said it's not. That is the perfect message. I think that's exactly what we all need to be reminded of right now. Thank you so much for being here, Michaela, and sharing with us. I've got a new phrase from you, humble leadership, and what resilience can look like in a time of coming back together. Yes. Well, thank you so much. It's, I love your work. And so, you know, please keep it messy so it can be magnificent. <laughs> Promise. You're, I'm swearing on the air. I'm, I'm vowing. <laughs> Uh, I don't think I could be not messy if I tried anymore, but (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, there you have it. I hope you're as thankful as I am to get to hear what true leadership can look like in our new economy. Now, Michaela and her business partner, Shelly Tantum Kieran over at Mocha Plus are doing something really special here. They are not wasting the crisis that is COVID. And what I mean when I say that is that their salon series that was originally meant to be done in person at locations all over the world, well, they changed that up 
so that anybody can access it for free, meaning every Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific time, so that's 9 p.m. for all my East Coast listeners, you can join Michaela and a different hand-selected guest for a rich and meaningful conversation on a variety of topics. So I'm going to make sure that we put a link to that so you can RSVP for the next one. I can't wait to see who's going to be the next speaker. And you and I might get to hang out in there as buddies learning some new things together. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Because remember, you thrive through nourishment, not punishment. Thank you for listening to the Messy and Magnificent podcast and being part of this dynamic, life-giving community of women. I consider each episode part of a lifelong conversation of you and me hanging out, sipping tea together, making sure that all women become richer, more nourished, and able to keep on rising. So I'll see you on the next episode next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to head over to carlyfane.com forward slash podcast to get the full show notes. And I've also got some extra special free resources for driven women over there that you won't find anywhere else.